If you would join me again in John chapter 3, if we would understand the gospel biblically, know that there is much that passes for, quote, the gospel, but if we would know it biblically, we will know the conversation of Jesus and Nicodemus forward and backward. There is a pattern that's here that we're going to see this morning. I think we do well to point it out. And I'll remind you of something I said a few weeks ago. I was reminded of it myself this morning. The wisdom of Jesus in dealing with those who came before him. He did not have the same conversation with everyone. He didn't have this same conversation with the woman at the well. He didn't have this same conversation with anyone else. This is particular to Nicodemus, and the subject of it, the new birth, particularly important to Nicodemus because he trusted in his physical birth. And Jesus is telling him, there is nothing in that physical birth that you can cling to that will be of any help to you in this realm of salvation. And so, for the last couple of weeks, we began to look at this conversation. We've made our way down through, I think, the 10th or 11th verse. And this conversation, obviously, is full and rich with gospel truth. Nicodemus was highly educated. He was well-schooled. He was held in high esteem by his countrymen and even his peers. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. He was a man of prominence. But this highly regarded teacher, for all of his learning, for everything that he knew, was filled with what we might call consternation by the things he is hearing from Jesus. He quite simply just does not understand. That's evidenced for us in several ways. Verse 3 Jesus tells him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus' response to that shows no spiritual understanding at all. It shows no spiritual perception at all. And remember, this is the learned Nicodemus, the teacher. And he's asking a child's question. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then Jesus gives him an answer to this question. We've studied this answer for the last couple of weeks. And Jesus unfolds for him what the new birth really is. It's to be born from above. It's to be born of God. It's to be regenerate. So when we look at this conversation, we can't help but somewhat feel for Nicodemus. And understand that rightly. I don't know that we should pity too much the one that is so privileged to stand before Christ and hear these truths. But in a sense, everything he had ever been taught, everything that he was even then at this point in time holding firm belief in, and even those things which he was given to teaching to others is now being challenged. Everything that he held dear, Everything that he was trusting in for his salvation to this point, the one standing before him 
is challenging every portion of it. And we should see this as a great mercy. This explains his questions, I think. His questions which are summed up in the ninth verse when he says, How can these things be? How can these things be? And don't you know that if this is true of Nicodemus, the teacher, what state would the people have been in? What kind of understanding would they have had? The best of them. The most well-learned of them. What I guess we could call the most mature of them. They would have mimicked, most likely, Nicodemus's understanding and perhaps his very own questions. William Hendrickson has said of this conversation, a simple observation. He says, how difficult it must have been for Nicodemus to unlearn everything that he had always believed. Can you relate to that? Some of you were raised or given to false religions like Catholicism from your earliest days that was ingrained into you. And then somewhere along your path, somewhere in God's providence for you, you heard the gospel. And it did not accord with what you had been taught your whole life. This is Nicodemus. What he's hearing, he could not square with everything that he had heard his entire life, of which he was even now the scholar, the doctor, and the teacher. Others not raised in Catholicism, perhaps you were raised in some other type of religion. Perhaps you were not raised in religion at all, and, that, and the same would apply to you and me here. What we're hearing doesn't square with anything that we had been taught or told before. Others of us can take it a step further. We were raised in gospel-preaching churches, and there was enough gospel preached in those churches to bring us to faith in Christ. But does it square with this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus? That's the question. And this is where I can so closely relate to this man. Everything that he held dear, Jesus is tearing down. But just like the Apostle Paul, and in a greater sense, how often did Paul say to put things off, put off the old man? Did he ever leave a person unclothed? No. He said, now put back on the truth. Take off the false, put on the truth. That's the same pattern, really. Perhaps Paul got it from Jesus here. That's the same thing he's doing with Nicodemus. Put off all of this old stuff. And we've seen that the last couple of weeks. Now what we're about to get into in this conversation is Jesus teaching Nicodemus what to put in the place of all of this falsehood and error. Obviously, in this conversation, right in the middle of it, what some have called the greatest verse in all the Bible, and I suppose that's rightly so. There were others that might rival that, but... Certainly, this is a faithful representation of the Christian gospel in summary form. That verse being the 16th, that we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is what Martin Luther called this verse, the, gospel, the Bible in miniature. This is indeed the message of the Bible. 
God loving the world, giving, him, giving of himself his own son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But let me remind you, this verse is immersed in a conversation. This verse is immersed in what we call a context. How we understand what this verse means and every particular aspect of it, every word in this verse is important. Every word in this verse is instructive. How we understand it is important, and we are given clues of how to understand it in the context or the conversation that it is found in. Verse 16 has things that precede and things that follow. You see that in the very first word of the 16th verse, which we're going to get here next week, but the first word is what? Four. So verse 16 is resting upon a foundation. That foundation is the first half of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. That's the foundation upon which it's built. And so, keeping all of that in mind, so far what we've seen of this relationship or conversation is that Nicodemus, Perhaps he's older. His question might reflect that. Can a man be born again when he is old? Perhaps he's speaking of himself. We know that he, we know that he comes to Jesus at night, and he both commends Jesus and affirms Jesus when he says, Rabbi, you are a teacher come from God. We know this. No one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. It's interesting how none of that settled on Jesus. He didn't even acknowledge what Nicodemus had said. He just goes straight into, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Most assuredly, I say unto you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, no doubt, took this as a personal word to himself. Nicodemus, unless you were born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter that you are affirming me as a great rabbi. It doesn't matter that you are affirming the miracles that I do it doesn't even matter that you are affirming that God is with me. What matters is whether or not you were born again. And that's the issue at hand for all of us. That is the central issue for each one of us in the room. Whether or not we are born again. The Bible makes a distinction of only two classes of mankind. Those who are born again and those who are not. There is no third option. There is no place that one can go after death, after a physical death, and make amends for things that he or she did not believe in this day of salvation. There is no purgatory. No one is going to pray for you after you are gone, and as a result of their prayers, you will inherit eternal life. That's not biblical thinking at all. As we look at the conversation, and really I'm going to present it as it does have two parts. The first half being leading up to verse 16, and then verse 16 itself and what follows being the second half. It's noteworthy that Jesus teaches Nicodemus in this sequence. And the sequence I'm referring to is he teaches him first about the new birth, and then about believing in him. 
He teaches him first of the absolute necessity that someone be born again. Then he teaches him the absolute necessity that you must believe. Obviously, we see it clearly in the 16th verse. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there again, even tucked into that verse, we see Jesus referencing the two classes of men. Those who perish and those who have eternal life. These are the direct opposites. But though by perish, Jesus does not mean annihilated. Some hold to the thinking that when a person dies, they're just annihilated and they cease to exist. And that those who are born again are believers then go on to be with Christ. Well, that's not a biblical thought either. Please hear me carefully when I say this. Those who are unbelieving also have an eternal life. But it's so unlike those who are believing. That eternal life is lived in eternal punishment. It's lived in an eternal bearing of the wrath of God against you. And you will never be able to make payment for your sin. There will never be an end to the condemnation that you will be under throughout all eternity. That is the category of those who perish. But thank the Lord for the second category. Those who will inherit eternal life by Based on their belief and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will forever throughout all eternity. And as eternity unfolds and as God makes known to us the things of God, we will forever be under the gracious care and mercy of our God. You can go and read parables like Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus, where we're given just a glimpse of this, a great gulf being fixed with no longer the ability for one to, to, to make their way to the other place. It's fixed. And so this is the foundation or the basis upon the, the conversation that Jesus is having in Nicodemus. Back to the sequence. Jesus is teaching Nicodemus that he must be born again before he can believe. So many would take issue with that statement. But let me direct you right back here to the third chapter of the Gospel of John. We must be born from above before faith can be birthed in us. Unless you are born again, you will not put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist knew this. Shortly after this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, John says this in the 27th verse, John the Baptist a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Jesus, in his own words, would say something very akin to this in the 6th chapter, in the 44th verse, when Jesus says, and granted, this verse is highly debated as to what it means, but if we just take the clear of what it means, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Notice the word can in that 44th verse. No one can. No one is able. No one has the ability to come to me unless something happens to and for them. When you read draws him in the 44th verse, equate that to the new birth of John 3. 
And you could read it in that same way. No man can come to me unless he is born again. That is the promise of the new covenant. We've read it over and over in the last several weeks out of Ezekiel. We could read it out of Jeremiah. We could read it in several other places in the scriptures. The promise of the new covenant, which the writer of Hebrews tells us in so many ways is better than the old, is that there would be a new heart given, that there would be an ability given now to keep the laws of God, which we once did not have, to walk in obedience to him, because the Spirit of God is now indwelling us and helping us. And so before Jesus gets to the point of the conversation that he calls for Nicodemus' faith and belief, He has first told him of the absolute necessity for the new birth. So getting directly to the point, Jesus teaches the necessity of being born again before he unpacks the heart of the gospel and calls Nicodemus and us along with him to put our faith and trust in him. I read this just this morning. Some of you may have seen this as well. The new birth precedes the whosoever will because the whosoever will can't until he's born again. I realize we're dealing with great mystery. I realize that when you read the scriptures and we read them honestly, we understand that there is the sovereignty of God at work and then there is the responsibility of man at work. We preach both. God is sovereign in salvation, but yet a man has a responsibility placed upon him to come to Christ, believe the gospel, turn from his sins, turn to Christ. Those things are not contradictory to one another because we know that they are both biblical teachings and the scriptures never contradict themselves. And so Jesus is leading skillfully, obviously, Nicodemus through this conversation. And don't you wish we knew the end of this conversation? Don't we wish that there was a reply of Nicodemus by the time we come to a close of this conversation, that aha moment for Nicodemus. But God in his wisdom and sovereignty has kept that disclosed. We don't see it anywhere. We see the fruit of it. We see Nicodemus in chapter 7 standing in the group of Pharisees of which he's one, perhaps the greatest of them, defending Jesus. They're calling for his death. And he says, wait a minute. Does our law condemn one before we even hear what he's claiming? Nicodemus there is is holding back the fury that is rushing on Jesus. He's placing himself there in the middle. And we see here, I believe, the fruit of his understanding of this conversation in its fullest sense. And if we can't see it there, certainly, as we've referenced a couple of times already, we see it by his Willingness to come out of the crowd, out of the multitudes, walk up to Pilate and say, I want his body, along with Joseph. Apparently, even though we aren't given chapter and verse, Nicodemus was born again. Nicodemus put his faith and trust in Christ. Nicodemus is our brother. We'll see him. We can converse with him. And perhaps we could say things like, I studied your conversation with Jesus over and over again. And it's what led me to faith in Christ. 
countless thousands, perhaps even thousands of thousands, have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through studying the third chapter of John and the necessity of the new birth. So just to answer a couple of questions that I may have raised. We are undiscriminate gospel preachers. What I mean by that is the gospel is to be preached to everyone. We call all men to come and put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he has done. Like the sower of the seed in the parable, we are casting our seed promiscuously. We are casting it upon the hearts of men, trusting that there will be those hearts that have been born again and represent those hearts that are prepared for the seed of the gospel to fall on them, take root and grow up and bear fruit unto the praise and the glory of God. And even as that parable presents and others present, the mysterious part of that work belongs to the Lord. You remember the parable, we don't really know. We can explain a few things, but how this seed is dry. For all intents and purposes, it looks dead. But you place it in the ground, you cover it with earth, you give it a little water and let the sun shine on it, what happens? Before long, you see a leaf shooting through. Before long, you see the effect of the mysterious working of God that happened underground. Salvation is very akin to that. Salvation mysteriously happens underground, so to speak. It happens inwardly. We can't really see the inner workings of of Christ renewing a heart, but just like the seed finally pops through and shows a little blade, we can witness that work in our own heart and in the hearts of others. So the mysterious work belongs to the Lord. Obedience to the Great Commission is our responsibility. To make the gospel known to the ends of the earth is our responsibility. The Lord Jesus Christ does not dispatch Michael the archangel on gospel mission. He dispatches you and he dispatches me. That's part of the miraculous nature of the gospel, isn't it? In our own finite minds, it makes way more sense to us to have an angel in all of his glory proclaiming the gospel. Who wouldn't believe him? But yet, you put that same message in the mouth of someone like me or someone like you. Then we're dependent upon the mysterious working of God. We are totally dependent upon God taking his own word and using that word and not the glory of another to save a soul. So let's, after that lengthy introduction, let's pick up the conversation where we left off in verse 10. After Nicodemus asks the question, how can these things be? Just after Jesus had given him the illustration of the wind and the wind blowing where it wishes and you hear the sound, you can't tell where it comes from nor where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Last week we made the simple point, the Spirit of God works when and how He wishes in the hearts of men. 
That doesn't negate our responsibility of preaching the gospel, praying, raising our children in the nurture and fear and admonition of the Lord, discipling those around us, making the gospel known. But yet, the illustration by Jesus here, this mysterious work is happening all around you. You can't see it, but you see the effects of it. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus replies to Nicodemus' question of how these things can be by saying to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. What a tremendous verse. I can't explain it to you fully. I'm going to scratch at it just a bit. I'm going to scratch at it just enough to raise a few questions in your heart and mind and then send you home to deal with them. Jesus says to Nicodemus, we, three times over, we speak, we know, we have seen. Now, the King James Bible and the New King James Bible attempts to help us out here by capitalizing the W in every one of these. And if we read it that way, and if their interpretation is correct, then Jesus is speaking of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We speak what we know and testify of what we have seen. You do not receive our witness. Could very well be. Some think that Jesus is here referring to himself and John the Baptist. John the Baptist has very much said the same thing. And we'll continue to say the same thing. He does come on the scene immediately after this conversation with Nicodemus draws to a close. Some think that Jesus is referencing here the prophets. Luke 24, he says, all of the prophets, all of the old covenant is speaking about me, so we, the prophets and myself. Some think that Jesus is here referring to all believers, all who have been born again at the exclusion of Nicodemus. Any of those things could be true. But I'm going to come down that Jesus is speaking for himself, even though he's using the plural. And this is not something that Jesus doesn't normally do. He's done it before. The parable of the mustard seed. He says, as he's teaching, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? Jesus is doing the same thing that we do sometimes. Sometimes even I will stand up here and say something about last week we looked at this or we said this. And obviously I don't mean all of you said this along with me. I mean I said this and I'm just using that figure of speech. I think when we look at the context of the verse, that's what is saying. Because the very next verse Jesus says, I told you. I've told you these things. But notice he says, whichever way we come down on that, it really doesn't matter. Most assuredly, verily, verily, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. Here is the great mystery. Nicodemus, a teacher of the law, a Pharisee, a moral man. Nicodemus wasn't a scoundrel. Nicodemus was an upstanding man 
recognized by those in his community to be just that. He was the cream of the crop. And here he has the Son of God standing before him, declaring to him the gospel message. And he's just standing there blank-faced. He's just not getting it. And so, perhaps a point of application here would be to take heart. You have people that stand before you blank-faced when you preach the gospel to them. They just don't understand. Don't be discouraged. Keep on. Keep on keeping on. Jesus had the same response. Very often, a blank stare, a cold heart, and an unrenewed mind not receiving the things of which he is speaking. Again, John says the same thing. Verse 27, same chapter. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. That's in the spiritual sphere. We reference this verse, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural man can't discern the things of God. Why is that? They're spiritually discerned. And so here, at least by verse 12, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you have yet to receive our witness. And then another somewhat mysterious and confusing verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So the distinction is made here between the earthly and the heavenly. And I think the earthly refers to everything that... Jesus has told Nicodemus to this point concerning the new birth and regeneration. I'll tell you why in just a moment. The heavenly things refer to everything that follow. To this point, Nicodemus has not understood either one. So far, Jesus has talked to Nicodemus about the necessity of the new birth, what we call regeneration. This is the, quote, earthly thing. Why? Because it takes place here on earth. If a man is to be regenerate, if he is to be converted, if he is to be born again, it will happen here on earth in the earthly sphere. It doesn't happen before you're born, and it's not going to, have to happen after you die. It's, a, it's an earthly thing, so to speak. And you can think of it in this way. God came down to man on earth. He dwells in man by his spirit on earth. This is the earthly Thing. Nicodemus did not receive it. He just asked questions. How? How can this be? How can I be born again? I can't go back into my mother's womb. I'm an old man. But what about the heavenly things that are to follow? All of these are outside of the earthly realm. These refer to the mystery of Christ's divinity. We're going to see that. The mystery of his incarnation. The price of atonement, though that was worked out in time, on the cross, on earth. The counsels of this redemption and atonement happened in eternity past. And then we end up with the mysterious work of justification by faith. So let's look at the first of these heavenly things. No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. So here we've got three verses in a row. 11, 12, and 13. That are shrouded in mystery. We can understand some of it. Lord, help us to understand it rightly. Jesus tells Nicodemus in verse 13 that there is only one 
who has ascended to heaven, and that one is the same one who came down from heaven and is the same one who is still in heaven. The mystery of the divinity of Christ being fully God and fully man. Only Christ could say of himself, I'm here on earth and I'm in heaven at the same time. Only the God-man could make such a claim, but that's exactly the claim that he makes. And he's telling Nicodemus that there is no one who has understood this mysterious counsel of heaven other than himself. Paul would say of himself that he was caught up into the third heaven, but his mouth was sealed. He couldn't even speak of the things that he had seen there. So even Paul, comes after this conversation, would have been no help. There is only one who has ascended, and that is he who came down. So this speaks of not just the mystery of Christ's divinity, but of his incarnation. He came down from heaven. The Son of Man who is in heaven. And yes, I realize you have a note there in your Bible that says, who is in heaven. The authenticity of it may be under some dispute. But that doesn't do any injustice to the divinity of Christ. I don't know this. I can't prove this. And I'm somewhat hesitant to even say it because it's just conjecture on my part. Maybe verse 14 was Nicodemus's aha moment. Maybe not. The skillful and wise teacher, having already illustrated by the wind blowing where it will, makes another illustration that's certainly a Pharisee, a student of the law, would understand. And so, this is what Jesus says. This is one of those heavenly things. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So let's do something quickly. Take your Bible, flip back to Numbers chapter 21. If it's been a while since you've read Numbers 21, let me remind you of what's taking place there. Because notice, Jesus of all of the references, of all the illustrations, of all of the types of himself that he could have pulled out of the Old Testament, he pulls this one to press home to Nicodemus the necessity of the new birth, the necessity of believing in him. So if you're in Numbers chapter 21, look at verse 4. The brazen or the bronze serpent. Now the context of this You know the pattern, the repetitive pattern with the people of God under the Old Covenant. They would fall into sin, repent of their sin, show a bit of evidence of repentance of their sin, give it enough time, enough harsh circumstance, they fall right back into their sin, and that cycle repeats itself over and over and over. This is one of those cycles And so in the fourth verse, they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. Now, let me me remind you, 
If you were to read the first four verses of this chapter, one of those cycles has already repeated itself. The people cry out to the Lord. The Lord listened to their voice, delivered the Canaanites, delivered up the Canaanites, utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. Now, very next verse, the cycle begins to repeat itself. Their soul is discouraged and the people spoke against God. They're complaining, murmuring, and grumbling against God and against Moses. And here's what they say. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. So what does the Lord do? Discipline. Fiery serpents sent by the Lord among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. It's not hard to see this scenario play out in our minds, right? Poisonous viper biting men and women, and then their ensuing death. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he takes away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Jesus chooses this illustration. It's so clear. This type that concealed who he was now has the lid taken off. What was once in shadow form now has a spotlight shining on it. Jesus said again to Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Don't miss the word must. It's not an addition. It's not an italics. It's not something we hope is true. It's something we know to be true. There is only one possible remedy for the plague of sin, and it's the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. I want you to notice the similarities with me between Numbers 21, the verses we read in John 3. And isn't it also interesting, as the Bible unfolds, as we, as we practice what we call biblical theology, as we see the Bible as a whole, it's not a bunch of pieces that are put together. From beginning to end, there is one story, one overarching mega story, and it's the story of Christ come to redeem Sinners. And so isn't it interesting here that the plan of the gospel, redemption, is not stated as something new. Jesus does not have to come up with a new illustration. Rather, 
he goes back to what was partially disclosed under the old dispensation and he blows the top off of it. Here are the similarities. Death was threatened as punishment for sin. The fiery serpent represents the sting of sin. Once bitten by the serpent, death was soon to follow. And so here here are the similarities. All of us coming into this life having been bitten by the serpent. A fiery serpent who way back in Genesis chapter 3 deceived Eve. Adam ate of the fruit, plunged mankind into what we call the fall. And death was the payment. The wages of sin is death. Numbers 21, get bit by the snake, you die. Gospel era, you get bit by the snake, you die. And oh, by the way, everyone's been bitten by the snake. Another similarity is that God in sovereign grace provides a remedy. Notice he says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. God in sovereign grace provides a remedy. In Numbers 21, he provides the remedy by a bronze snake placed on a pole, lifted up, and so that those who were bit by the snake, all they had to do was cast their eyes of faith on that snake on a pole, believing that it would remedy the bite of the, of the snake, and all would be well. And that's exactly what happened. Everyone that was bitten looked at the pole, looked at the snake, the bronze serpent, and they were made whole. So too in the, in the age of the gospel, those that have been bitten by the snake, and all have, if you will just look to Christ with eyes of faith, believing that He is sufficient, His work is enough to save you, you will be saved, all will be well the effects of the fiery serpent's bite on you will be completely negated. And you will go on to live eternal life. The third similarity is the remedy consists in something in Numbers 21 and in John 3, someone being lifted up. Now I realize we very often in our praise to God use the phrase high and lifted up as, as an offering of praise. That is not what this means. Here, in this instance, to be lifted up here means to be placed on the cross, to be crucified, to be beaten, to be bloodied, to die. If we need proof of that, we can go to John chapter 12 and look at verse 32 where Jesus uses the phrase. He says, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Lest we think that only means, lest he be praised, the verse goes on and says, This he said, signifying by what death he would die. For Christ to be lifted up, and granted, it has both meanings. Go to the book of Acts, Peter's preaching, he speaks of Christ being lifted up. The context there is definitely worshipped, praised, 
exalted. But here in the Gospels, when John speaks, when Jesus speaks and John records, he is referring to his own crucifixion. This is the remedy. Look to the crucified Christ. And the effect of the fiery serpent upon you will be negated. The fourth similarity, and I'm drawing to a close here. The fourth similarity is those who look to the one lifted up, believing, are healed. It's as simple as that. If you will look to the crucified, yet resurrected Christ, if you will look with eyes of faith upon Him, trusting that He will defeat the effects of sin, you will inherit eternal life. But what about the mysterious work of God in regeneration? What if you're asking the question, am I born again? Have I been given a new heart? How can I know? Simple. If you will look to Christ with eyes of faith, you've been given a new heart. Unregenerate people do not look with eyes of faith to Christ. If you see Him in your mind's eye as you read the Scriptures, hanging on the tree, bleeding and dying for you, having become sin for you, making payment for your sin for you, if you see Him in that light, And if you are believing that his death, burial, resurrection, defeated sin, and the effect of the fiery serpent is removed, you're born again. Spiritually dead people don't believe such things. They ask these types of questions. How can a man be born again when he's old? How can these things be? Those have been born again here, the 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Latch on with as little faith as they have at that moment and never let go. Is that you? Are you looking to Christ as he has been lifted up? Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 24. Another great summary of the gospel. What you'll read there about this lifting up is that God publicly displayed Christ. And he did so as a propitiation for our sins. How did he publicly display him? On the cross so all could see. Everyone passing by the road, they could see and read in their own language the sign written above him. The Son of God. So you'll leave here today just as you came in firmly set in one of these two categories of mankind. Those who are perishing and those who are inheriting eternal life. What makes the difference? Whether or not you will look with eyes of faith 
to Christ. Trusting in Him, His work, His merit, His righteousness, His goodness, His obedience to the law as enough for you. And I can tell you it is enough and I have all of the authority of the Word of God to say that. Christ is sufficient to save sinners. Paul said the first of the trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles, this is a faithful, trustworthy saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he adds the tag of which we can all relate, of whom I am chief. If you're the chief of sinners, look to Christ. He will save you. He will not turn you away. He is full of mercy. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the gospel. Thankful for the conversation with Nicodemus. Lord, there is much there that we may not understand fully, rightly, but there is enough there that we do understand. We understand that Jesus said he must be lifted up and any that would be saved must look to him. So, Father, I pray that you would do that mysterious work in the heart of men, women, boys, and girls. And that as a result of that mysterious work, that the questions of how would be replaced with wonder at what you've done. Father, we pray that you would save the lost, that you would edify the saints. We pray that you would continue to make yourself known to us. We thank you for condescending grace. You, the high and holy Son of God, came into this earth, humbled yourself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, so that we could look to you and be saved. May it be so, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.